Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put it into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the mercy, the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Father God, thank you that the whole Bible does point to Jesus, your son, and how we can relate to you through him. So please show us how this part of the Old Testament points to Jesus, what he's done for us, and who he can be for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. I once did a uh, training conference for church leaders in Kenya, and my wife Tess came with me, and afterwards uh, we did a safari at a tented lodge, and they were my kind of tents. Uh, there's a picture, ours had a four-poster bed, a rainforest shower, and a high-end coffee maker. And you can tell a lot about people from the kind of tent they choose. And funnily enough, the same is true of God. Because in this next bit of Exodus, we're going to see how the Lord told his people to build him a tent, which was also called the tabernacle. 
and it was the most important and educational tent ever built because God designed it to teach his people back then uh, and us today how to relate to him. So could you open your Bibles again to page 65? Uh, That will get you to Exodus 25. We are going to skim Exodus 25 to 31. Uh, You might be thinking what lunatic designed this uh, sermon series, and the answer is me. Um, That's why I was given this particular uh, ambitious bit. We're going to skim this bit because it's all about the Lord's tent, so it makes sense to look at it together. Uh, And instead of spending weeks on every detail, which might be good, more often than not, it's the best thing in the Bible to see the wood for the trees. So that's what we're going to do. So the story so far is is rewind. The Lord... uh, found his people in Exodus, in slavery. He rescued them from there. He's brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he proposed marriage to them. He said, I will be your God if you're prepared to be my people. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the rest of it to tell them what what that would involve. Gave them time to think. And then last time, uh, we looked at Exodus 24 where you get the marriage ceremony where they say, we will. And then what's meant to happen after a wedding? The answer is you move in and live together. And this next bit of Exodus is where God tells them to make this tent so that he can move in and live with them. And the first thing we see is the reason for the tabernacle. Have a look down to chapter 25 and verse 3. Chapter 25, verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, says God. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, etc., etc. In other words, the the, the highest of high-end materials because of who this tent is going to be for. Look on to verse 8. This is really important. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. And just a bit of vocab up on the screen. Sanctuary just means a place where holiness is. Holiness, that word in the Bible, it means otherness. And it's about how God is completely other than us. So morally perfect, imperfect. Uncompromising, pretty shabby. So this is going to be a tent where God in all his holiness lives. And we've already met God in all his holiness in Exodus when he came down uh, on Mount Sinai in fire and thunder and all of the rest of it and terrified them. My dad uh, worked on nuclear reactors and I think how the Israelites felt about the Lord was probably about how my dad felt about those nuclear reactors reactors. Uh, Danger of radiation, keep safe distance. Only with the Lord, it was danger of judgment, keep safe distance. And yet here, he says he he wants to step down and camp with them. It's like having a nuclear reactor in your living room. Not the most comfortable thought. Just turn over to chapter 29 and verse 46. Okay, we're just going to skim and dip 
Wood for the Trees, chapter 29, verse 46, where the Lord, he says again the reason for the tabernacle. Chapter 29, verse 46, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why did he do that? So that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So way back at the beginning of Exodus, God's aim all along was that he would end up living among them, doing them good and meeting their needs just like the best of husbands wants to. My dad never showed any interest in Christian things, sadly, and one time we talked about it. Uh, He said to me, Ian, science explains everything I need explaining, but he said, if God is there, what does he want with us? And he was irritated, as if he just thought, you know, the only thing God could want is to slap some unreasonable life-spoiling demands on us. And it's often best to answer a question with a question, isn't it? So I said, well, what do you want from me and Neil, my brother? I said, what, what did you hope for with us? And he said, I guess that in the, la- in the end, we'd have a good relationship. And I said, that, that's all God wants from us. That's the reason for the tabernacle. It shows that God wants relationship with us. And that may be a really surprising brand new thought to some of you here who are just looking into all this. The thought that this, this seemingly far away, is he even there God, could want to be your friend. The answer is yes. Yes, he could. Okay, second thing that you see in these chapters is the teaching of the tabernacle. What, what does it teach? What's God saying through it? Turn back to chapter 25 and verse 9, if you would. Chapter 25 and verse 9. Chapter 25, verse 9, where the Lord says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And that's like a running gag through these chapters. He says, make it exactly as I say. Why? Well, what's the second commandment? That's an easy question because it's up on the screen for you to look at. You shall not make for yourself a carved image in other words, a representation of God or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. And that's because any representation of God we make will be a misrepresentation. We'll always get it wrong out of our own heads. By contrast, the Lord says in chapters 25 to 31, you shall make this tent exactly as I tell you because it'll teach you exactly how to relate to me. And the first thing they were to make was the ark, uh, not Noah's ark, that's back in Genesis, but this box that was right at the middle of the tabernacle. Look at chapter 25, verse 10. Chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit was about half a meter. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Skip to verse 16. And you shall put into the ark, into this box, the testimony that I shall give you. And the testimony was the Ten Commandments, plus maybe a bit more, written down. 
And putting that um, into the ark symbolized that this was not going to be a marriage of equals. This was the creator relating to his creatures, and he was going to rule them through his word. And so his word was put in the very middle of this giant visual aid. So the ark teaches that we, we relate to God through his word, in fact, through what he's already spoken and had written down. Now, back then, they had only a fraction of what we now have in the completed Bible. But, but back then, or, or now, God expects people believing in him to relate to him through what he's already spoken. So instead of expecting you know, new words from him every day, I don't know, writing in the sky or, or, or whatever, he expects us to treat this as all we need to hear from him. So that to treat the Bible as, as the always up-to-date, always relevant, complete word of God to us, which, which never needs uh, adding to or improving on or replacing. So that's, some, that's the testimony that was put into the, the box, the ark. But the Lord knew that, that his people would constantly fall short of, of what that said. That said that, they would live that. And so there'd constantly been this, this performance gap. And he knew it would constantly need forgiving. So the other symbolic thing about the ark was the mercy seat. So look on to chapter 25, verse 17. Chapter 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, in other words, angel figures that, that were to sit on top of it. Skip to verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. So it was a kind of cover. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. Um, I'm trying to avoid death by detail, but there is a footnote to verse 17 about this mercy seat. And it says you could translate the original word mercy cover. Uh, other Bibles, you might have an NIV at home, say atonement cover. And I wish they had stuck with that here because the word atonement is often used to explain the sacrifices that went on at the tabernacle. And atonement just has the idea, it's up here, of covering something. So the concrete floor in here is atoned for by this carpet. Or another example, in, in, back in Moses' day, they would talk about atoning for a debt. That meant covering a debt because you'd paid enough money. Um, and then unlike the carpet, which is still there but hidden, the debt was gone, cancelled and gone. And that's what the sacrifices at the tabernacle symbolized. This is jumping ahead from Exodus. Uh, next book is Leviticus, and it talks about a thing called the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the, the head priest at the tabernacle um, would sacrifice a goat, would take its blood, and he would he would smear the blood on the, the mercy seat, or I'm calling it atonement cover. And the goat's death symbolized that a substitute had 
suffered God's judgment instead of his people who deserved it. And the blood was like evidence, exhibit A, that that had happened. So, so when it was put on the mercy seat, it was almost an acted prayer to say, Lord, please, would you, would you accept that this substitute has symbolically taken your judgment so that we can be forgiven? That was the idea. Um, it's covered our debt. And the whole setup of priests and sacrifices, it was given by God because he knew that they would constantly fall short of what he was calling them to be, and so they would need constant forgiveness. So that's what the ark, this box at the middle of the whole thing, was teaching. The testimony, the Ten Commandments and so on inside said, this is what I want you to live up to, and the atonement cover said, but I know that you'll never manage it and that you will need constant covering with forgiveness. The story's told of a couple who got married uh, in later life, and uh, a friend of the wife-to-be said, well, you're not exactly going to have young love's blindness on your side, so how are you going to deal with everything you don't like about him? She said, ah, I've, I've drawn up a list of all of those things, and I've forgiven them in advance. And the friend said, but what about the things you don't know about yet? She said, ah, the last thing on my list was, and everything I don't know about yet. And God, the husband, was equally realistic about his Old Testament people's need of forgiveness. And he's equally realistic about ours. He knows we need it every day from the moment we turn to him. Next comes a symbolic curtain. Have a look on to chapter 26 and verse 31. Chapter 26, verse 31. And you shall make a veil, in other words, a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. Skip to halfway through verse 33, uh, where the new sentence begins. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place place. I'll give you a picture of all this soon, but let's just deal with the curtain. Um, Where do you first meet cherubim in the Bible? The answer is actually up on the screen, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, and it says he drove out the man and the woman, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're like angels who who guard the way back into God's presence. They're like spiritual bouncers, if you like. So it's funny, on the one hand, the tabernacle symbolizes God's invitation to come and relate to him. And on the other hand, parts of it, like this curtain, symbolize the fact that, you know, we, we can't just come to him as we are. And that curtain, so you, you, you imagine coming, coming up to that curtain, it symbolized the separation between, between God and us because he's holy and we're not. And we just can't come into his presence just as we are. So growing up, I don't, I don't know about you, I remember coming back filthy and muddy from footy matches or messing around in the, the woods behind my parents' house in the country and mum the domestic cherubim would sometimes you know catch us about to come in through through the through the door and she would say stop you are not coming in here like that 
And that's what that temple was, sorry, that's what that curtain was saying. So here's the picture so far. Um, at the top in the middle, you've got the ark symbolizing God's presence uh, as, as Lord, as ruler, and also um, as forgiver. And that is behind the inner curtain. Uh, and that's, I take it, the curtain that was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday. Then um, the, rest of, uh, the rest of that space was called the holy place. That was behind an outer curtain. And all of that was a covered tent with a roof. And then that sat in a tabernacle court with an altar uh, there And the altar was where sacrifices were made and burnt, and you don't do barbecues indoors, so the, the courtyard was open to uh, the elements. So now turn on to chapter 28, verse 1, and let's meet the priests who I've already uh, jumped ahead and mentioned. Chapter 28, verse 1, and let's meet the priests. The Lord told Moses, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And they were to be symbolically dressed. So look on to verse 11. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. In other words, the 12 tribes. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. This was this, this big piece of kit the priests were to wear as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So regularly, Aaron was allowed to go through the, the outer curtain into the tabernacle. Once a year, he was allowed to go through the inner curtain into the most holy place. And it was like he was wearing God's people on his clothes, like he was representing them to the Lord. And his very presence there was like a prayer saying, Lord, will you remember all that lot with mercy? Will you do them good even though they don't deserve it? And then in chapter 29, we meet the sacrifices. So look at chapter 29, verse 10. Chapter 29, verse 10. And this describes the sacrifices that Aaron and sons uh, had to offer for themselves before they started their job. So it says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. So imagine I'm Aaron, there's the unfortunate bull, uh, and they all gather around. They lay their, head, they lay their hands on its head. And, and that was to symbolize a switch of liability for their wrongdoing from them onto the animal. Verse 11, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar. Um, and so remember the blood was evidence that this substitute had died. They take some of the blood and they present it to the Lord to say, will you accept that that covers our sin symbolically? And at the end of verse 14, that's why it's called a sin offering. And that was a sacrifice, which was a way that forgiveness of sin could be asked and received in the Old Testament. 
So wood for the trees, that's what the tabernacle taught. Last thing, final furlong, the promise of the tabernacle. Uh, You may be thinking too much detail, and what has this got to do with relating to Jesus today? And the answer is this. The tabernacle back then was just this giant visual aid that pointed forward to what Jesus would one day do by dying on the cross uh, and then rising again from the dead. That's why we had that reading from Hebrews. So I wonder, could you turn on to page 1005 again? Page 1005. That will land you back in Hebrews 9. And I hope it'll now make a bit more sense that a few more light bulbs, or at least one, might go on as you see the tie-up that the Bible writer is making here. So Hebrews 9, verse 1, page 1005. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. So I've spared you those details. I've tried to be kind. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. I spared you that as well, and the ark. Skip to the end of verse 5. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What a relief. Even the Bible writer says, look, just try and see the wood for the trees. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people, By this, by this whole setup, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So look on screen again at that picture. So long as that tabernacle was standing and it later got fixed into a building called the temple, so long as the tabernacle and then the temple were still standing... It was saying loud and clear the way for sinners to come fully and directly and safely into God's presence is not yet open. Still got to relate at a distance. Hmm. Why is that? We'll read on verse 9. According to this arrangement, in other words, the tabernacle stroke temple set up, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, a sensitive Old Testament soul would have said to him or herself, hold on, a a bull or a goat or a lamb, that's only symbolic. That, That can't deal with my sin. That can't pay for the forgiveness that I'm asking for. So the thing to get is those sacrifices were really a way that people could ask for and receive forgiveness but they didn't pay for the forgiveness that was being given. That was paid for when Jesus died on the cross. And so Old Testament people were forgiven on the basis of something that was in the future, whereas we are now forgiven on the basis of something that's in the past. But God's big enough to sort that out in his own mind. So read on, Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all 
into the holy places, that is, into heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, a payment for the forgiveness of all sins, for all people, for all time, forever. Nothing else left to do. Amazing. So just, just sit with that picture for a moment in your mind. Take that in again. And here's what it was pointing to. Does that make sense? And that's why God was so keen to say, make it exactly as I tell you, because it was going to be an exact representation of what Jesus would one day do. It was pointing to Jesus offering himself on the cross as the once for all sacrifice to pay for all sins for all people for all time, including yours. Please don't exclude yourself because of what's on your conscience. And that's why, as I said, as he died, that inner temple, that inner curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom to symbolize that, that for those of us trusting in Jesus, the, the way is open to relate as closely to God as you could imagine. And the tabernacle was also pointing to Jesus rising from the dead, returning to be with his Father in heaven and acting as our priest. Do you remember the priest in the tabernacle? Uh, his just being there was a prayer saying, Lord, have, have mercy on them. And Jesus' presence in heaven, complete with the wounds from the cross, is like a constant prayer to his Father saying, Please have mercy on them. Keep forgiving them who trust in me. And his father says, well, of course I will. It was my idea in the first place. How does the Bible apply all that to us? Just look on to Hebrews 10, uh, verse 17. Hebrews 10, verse 17. To those trusting in Jesus, verse 17, God adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will treat you as if you had not sinned, ever. And verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Did you catch the hint of application there? It doesn't actually tell us to do anything, but actually it's saying, so when you come to God in prayer, don't try to offer him any sacrifices. Don't try to offer him any reasons why he should forgive and accept you apart from the once and for all reason that Jesus died for you. And we need to be told that because we do try to offer him things as part of the reason he should forgive us. And I think there are two in particular. One is sorrow for sin. And I think we use these um, for the big things on our consciences. So, for example, for me, that includes a, a broken engagement earlier in my life which left me wallowing in guilt for a good year. For others, it may be someone we've hurt in a, in a different way or an abortion or a big deceit or whatever. And we think that offering God our sorrow for sin, being sorry enough for long enough, that, that that'll be part of the reason why he forgives and accepts us. And, and this all says no. The only reason is that Jesus died for us on the cross. It says, plead that and nothing else. I think the, the other thing that we often try to offer is our promise to do better. Do you do this one as well? And I think we use this for our habitual failings. So 
you know, Lord, I've, I've blown up at the children again. Um, I've fallen for pornography again. But I'm jolly well going to try and be better. So please, please, will you forgive me? And, and that becomes, that I'll try and be better becomes part of the reason why he should forgive and accept me. And all of this is saying, no, don't, don't do that. The only reason is that Jesus died for us. Plead that and nothing else. So let me read to you Hebrews 10, verse 19, to finish. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since, and this is mad, we have confidence, that, or you can translate that, boldness, to enter the holy places, to come into the nuclear reactor-like presence of God. We, we have confidence to do that. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, since that picture up there is true of you, if you are trusting in Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because faith looks away from anything that we think we can offer God as reasons why he should forgive and accept us. And, and faith looks entirely to Jesus as our sacrifice and Jesus as our priest. And on the strength of that, we come and we say to God, will you, will you uh, forgive me and accept me and listen to me and, and stay committed to me? grotty sinner that I am all the rest of my life and at the end of the day will you welcome me into heaven and whoever you are whatever you've done the answer to that is yes let's pray Father we come to you knowing that you are holy utterly perfect utterly uncompromising and knowing that you are our judge that you see everything you know everything about us down to our thoughts and motives and yet we can come we can come with confidence and in safety of not being rejected because of Jesus our sacrifice and Jesus our priest whom you've given for our sake and we simply pray that you would help us to put all our trust, all the eggs of our faith in that basket and nowhere else so that we do experience the assurance of where we stand with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.